Thank you for joining us here on the Free Your Energy podcast. Today, my host, his name is Connor Beaton. He is the creator of Man Talks. Without any further ado, let's dive right in. And I hope this episode helps you to free your energy. energy. Okay, so the book. We're gonna we're just gonna chat. We're gonna we're gonna do that. Yeah, yeah. let's just chat. Let's just let's just chat. Yeah, man. Uh, I mean, the book is all about, you know, I wanted to write really about what is the work that we have as men need to face, need to do, need to embrace, not for, you know, not, not based on what women want of us, not based on what society is telling us we need to do, but like in our heart of hearts, in our core, in who we are as men what is it that we need to face and it's a it's a hard question to ask you know it's a hard question to answer um i think in many ways because it's it's complex you know for some men what they need to face and the work that they need to do is about embracing the the trauma that they experienced as a kid or you know the the fact that they were abused or the fact that they grew up with without a dad and that's left a void in their life or I mean, it's just, it's numerous in many ways. And so, um, you know, I, I've, I've tried not to fall into the trap of like getting caught in defining what it means to be a man or what masculinity is. Cause that seems to be a vortex <laughs> that, that, you know, you can, you can go into and never emerge from. Um, but really it's like what, you know, what work can we embrace as men that will leave us with the very distinct understanding that we can trust and rely ourselves and that we can lead ourselves in effective ways in the world that allow us to contribute to our families and our communities because we derive a sense of meaning and purpose from that. And so that's, that's really what the book is about. I really like how... You made that distinction at the beginning that because you must have observed this, that sometimes men work, men's work is geared. There's this premise like do this work for your woman or do this work so you can get a woman. And obviously we're speaking from like a heteronormative lens here, but it's often like men work is often given to us as. As like a vessel for connection with a woman or for a woman. And I like how you bring it home and you're like, no, this work is for you in your whole community, mm-hmm. you know, not just woman, but your whole community. Now that you're a new father, how has your personal experience with men's work, as we call it, how is that coming into play as a dad now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I think it's interesting because we live in a pretty chaotic time and you know i would be remiss if i didn't sort of admit that before i even had a son i questioned whether or not bringing a child into the world was a value you know it's like what am i what am i bringing somebody into <laughs> and is that something that i really want to do you know is do i the world is is sort of in a very tumultuous interesting place right now it seems like we may not have learned the 
the full lessons of our past and we're, we're faced with some pretty substantial problems. But how my work has maybe evolved in, you know, specifically working with men as becoming a father, I think it's really showcased the importance of being a dad, you know, the importance of this role that we can step into as men. And I feel like like most men, that there's a, a different quality of responsibility that I feel to like with, you know, for lack of a better term, get my shit together, you know, to really be a a good man, a great man, um, not just for myself, but so that my son in a world of, uh, you know, that's severely lacking in role models sometimes so that my son can see maybe what an example of what a great man can look like. And that feels as close to his motivation as I can pro- probably describe, you know, it, it's like this quality, this experience of, of really wanting to hone in, like, what do I need to do in my life? What structure do I need to implement? What order, what rules do I need to create for myself? How can I, um, how can I continue to invest in the betterment of myself? Because my life is no longer just about me. And in a very real tactile way, you know, I have a whatever 12, 12 week old son and he's coming up on three months and he needs, you know, he needs me. He's very dependent. Um, he's his mom, arguably much more than me, <laughs> but, but, you know, I think that the father within our culture, um, plays a very significant role. So I think it, it reaffirms how substantial that role is. And with a lot of the men that I've worked with, um, there's healing with regards to their fathers. And a lot of the men that I've worked with, it's the pressure that they feel about becoming a father when they've never had one, um, or they they had one who was never around and you know, didn't really teach them lessons. And, and, and so there's sort of like this enigmatic mystery or or space there that they don't really understand. So yeah, I think I think that's what it's done for me. You know, it's it's pressed it's pressed upon me and sort of like seared into me the importance of that that role. And a lot of the data, a lot of the research around men, you know, young men that go to prison, young men that drop out of high school, young men that, you know, you just go down the list, they are often byproducts of fatherless homes. And fatherless you know, we can, is very loosely defined, right? You can grow up in a home where your father is there, um, or you can grow up in a, you know, he's there and he's not active. He doesn't take part in any part of your life. That's still an absent father, right? You can have a father that shows up, you know, is in your life once a month, that still is going to feel like an absent father, or you can have a father that is, is legitimately just never, never there, never a part of your life. So, you know, a lot of the research shows that that boys and young men that grow up in those environments, they they struggle, you know, they really struggle. So it's it's really reaffirmed that the importance of this um, of this honor that I've been that I've been gifted and, and sort of walked into. <laughs> What's your biggest fear right now as a new father? Mm. I mean, honestly, I think my biggest fear is that something will will happen to him. 
you know, that I won't be able to protect him. And that's, it's a very unique feeling, you know, it's a very unique feeling because I've never really wanted to protect someone to the degree that I find myself thinking about and experiencing with my boy, you know, like just random things, you know, like, <laughs> what if he chokes on that? What if he's, you know, he's going to start putting shit in his right. mouth and like, I got to protect, you know, I got to protect him. Like, what do we need to do around the house? What gates do we need to put up and little locks do we need to design? And like all, all this kind of stuff suddenly emerges out of this experience of how do I provide security and safety for this child who you know, is dependent and doesn't really know any better. And how do I protect him existentially from a world that seems like it's going fucking crazy sometimes, you know, it seems like it's losing its marbles. And so how do I embed or imbue him with a sense of, of sanity in a, in a, in a, in a time where we seem to have lost a good amount of that and I don't really have the answer to that second question yet, but the first one seems pretty tactical, so I can tackle that one. <laughs> the most interesting thing is watching a kid learn how to eat. So my son is 15 months now. I mean, I feel like he's a professional eater at this point. <laughs> but the first year I'm watching, like my eyes would pierce him as he's eating. And I'm just saying, okay, chew chew okay swallow it okay don't take that big of a bite i used to always say that to him when he was about your boy's age i'm like hey don't don't take that much like what are you doing you know but the thing is you kind of sit back and you see that he has to learn mm -hmm. as much as we want to protect they have to learn their own experience they have to learn their own boundaries their own capabilities they have they have to learn what's hot and cold is this going to hurt me? Like they have to learn that on their own. And it's so tough. It's so tough as a parent to, you have that, that healthy anxiety of, Hey, I want to help. I want to protect. I want to, I want to secure. But then there's also this piece where it's like, Hmm, let me allow him to do this. Let me allow him to experience pain. That's where, that's where I'm at now where I'm like, okay, I got to let him experience this pain. He has this thing where when he doesn't get his way, <clears throat> you know, because he can't control his emotions, he just throws his whole body back. Now, when you're doing that on the carpet, fine, no problem. Bang your head on the carpet. It's padded. You'll be okay. Well, he's doing it in the kitchen is hardwood floors. Mm. So me and mom are catching him and we're like, hey, stop. You can't do that. You can't do that. And I finally told mom, I'm like, hey, he's going to have to bang his head on the floor. He's going like, I don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. But it, it has to happen because he has to learn the consequences of his actions. And when we talk about the world we're in, a lot of people haven't learned the consequences of their actions. Or some of the consequences have been muffled. And when you have to deal with your consequences, that's when you become sane. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I feel like we have, you know, I think... I don't know if you and I grew up in this generation necessarily, but I think that many people have grown up in the the padded generation, you know, the generation that gets awards for participation and doesn't know the generative nourishment that we require from being defeated, you know, from from mm -hmm. suffering the consequences of wrong action, 
you know, wrong action. We, it's very simple. You know, and I think about my own life and I certainly lived in a way for a very long time where I didn't want to acknowledge, experience, or even be connected to the consequences of my wrong actions. You know, I wanted to reject that. I wanted to deny that. And there's, there's a great quote by um, Rilke. He says, winning does not tempt, tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. And I think that in some ways, we, we as a culture and as a society, but specifically we as men, um, are being asked to to be defeated, you know, to witness our consequences, to witness the the consequences of our action. Because in a time where we've we've taken online, and anyone can sort of spew their thoughts, their unconscious contents and unconscious behavior out onto the internet for other people to read. We are disconnected and detached from and separate from the perceived outcomes. So we can go on anybody's platform and rail on them and say whatever the fuck we want. And, and we don't have to, you know, there's nobody standing in front of us ready to punch us in the face if we say something wildly inappropriate, you know? And so it's sort of dissolving some of the social coherence that we've been used to uh, being creatures of, you know, standing face to face with another human being. Um, So, yeah, I mean, all that's to say is that like one of the, maybe I'll just summarize that by saying one of the most important things I've done in my life is to wake up to the consequences of my own actions, specifically between my right action and my wrong action, and to pay attention to that part and to allow that defeat, to allow when I failed to be important moments in my life that direct the course of who I then become. Because if I ignore those parts, I can never really grow. I can never really better or, or, or hope to better myself because all I'm trying to do is just improve on what's already working. And I'm ignoring this vast amount of data um, that could support in my betterment. Are you a Buddhist? I would say, I would say I'm, I'm probably, yeah, I mean, probably around like a Taoist Tao, like the Tao Te Ching and, and Taoism is probably the closest thing that I found to being, um, how I would align. Yeah. I just, when I, when I hear you saying, um, you know, the right view, wrong view, I know that that's a principle that, that comes from Buddhism. So that's what what made me wonder on that. Tell me a little bit more about some of the principles of the Taoists. Hmm. I mean, there's a few components that I think are relatively important. You know, the Tao starts the the Tao Te Ching starts with the line, "The Tao that is called the Tao is not the Tao," and it's a very simple yet profound reminder that. The Tao translated can translate to something along the lines of like the way or the path. And it's a reminder that when we, when we think we found the path, when we think we found the way, we likely haven't got it. You know, that we, we live in this realm of 
of language, which is in some ways a technology that we use to describe our experience. It's not our actual experience, right? So when we use the word anger, it's not the actual physical experience of or awareness of our anger. It's just a label that we give to try and describe it. And so the Tao that's called the Tao is not the Tao, or the way that's called the way is not the way, is in some ways just a simple reminder for us to not get caught in clinging to absolutes, universals, or the, or the belief that we have it figured out and no one else does. You know, in, in some ways, I'll sort of make it applicable to today's society where, you know, you have left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, you know, Trumpsters and Bideners and, and whatnot. And, and everyone is, is clinging deeply to the, their virtuousness, right? How virtuous can they be? And they all think that they're morally correct. And, you know, they all believe that they found the way and it is a way, it's a way of living. It's a way of being. Um, Alan Watts says in his, one of my favorite books, and he was, you know, he talked about Zen and Buddhism quite a bit. And, uh, he's got a book called the wisdom of insecurities that I've probably read about a dozen times. It's one of my favorite books of all time. It's a little obscure and not, not a lot of people know about it. Um, but he's got four words in that book that, that changed my perspective. And the four words are belief clings, faith allows belief clings, faith allows. And I think what Buddhism, Taoism teaches us or can teach us right now in some ways is that we, when we are met with chaos in our life, you know, when you're going through an uncertain, you're going through a rough patch in your relationship, when shit's going on in your career, your business is struggling. When chaos emerges, we look to things to cling to. We want things to believe. We desperately want things to believe. Our ego is designed to attach itself to certainty as a form of safety. Some of us more than, more than others, you know, depending on our, on our life and our paths, will we'll be sort of have a predilection towards that. But it's the reminder that we, if we are in belief, if we are needing to believe, we are clinging to something. We need evidence. You know, we need that certainty. It's like a drug, you know? And I think that in some ways, social media has provided us with the frameworks that it, that's constantly injecting us with the reaffirmation or the re-upping of our belief systems. You know, it just gives us whatever, whatever we want to see and read and hear, and it puts us in these silos. And whereas faith is about allowing, it's about meeting the uncertainty. And in Taoism, how we begin to um, understand our suffering, right? There's, we, we can go more into that, but how we begin to understand our suffering is by understanding our expectations, understanding our attachments, you know, understanding where we are needing to believe or we are clinging to belief or we're clinging to certainty and to relinquish those 
components to relinquish that as much as we humanly can, which is terrifying. You know, it's, it can be wildly terrifying when you're in a relationship with somebody and you're an anxious attachment and, you know, every part of you is just like, I just want this freaking person to text me back. You know, it's been 10 minutes and, you know, what are they doing? I need to believe that they love me or that they want me or that they're still here for me. And it's like, yeah. And so in those moments, we have to find a, a state of, of regulation, you know, of being able to regulate our nervous system. And, and for me, Taoism in some ways and the, the philosophical framework that it provides has, has supported that process along with a lot of other, a lot of other aspects, but yeah. If we were able to allow our beliefs to be more fluid, there would be less suffering. Hmm. We would be able to see the duality in our existence and in our identities. When we're attaching ourselves, a lot of the times we attach ourselves to belief systems that are black or white. It's right or wrong, yes or no, you know, the Republican, Democrat. And life doesn't necessarily work that way. Everything isn't 100%. That's the answer, you know? Sometimes you, it's only 51% that that's the answer, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, and when I look at the suffering of, I'll just say my friends, people that are in my close network, I really could say that, and you're making me recognize this, that it's really coming down to belief systems, to what we believe, because our belief systems then become our behavior. Our behaviors then become our lived experience. And the consequence of all lived experience is an emotion. And then how we interpret that emotion goes back into our thoughts and into our beliefs. And it's a cycle. It's a pattern. This is how we live. This is how we are wired. So at what point, if you were to look at that cycle and you were to say, well, hey, how do I change this? How do I change? Like, where do you do it? Well, you have to change your beliefs. Mm-hmm. So how do you convince someone? And I'm asking you this to see uh, what you what you think, because you're a coach. You've led a lot of men. How do you get someone who has a belief system that is hurting them, that is causing them pain, that they are identifying? They are saying, hey, I am going through pain. I am suffering. And they have this belief system. How do we get them on the, not necessarily on the other side, but how do we just get them to see a different belief system? And maybe if they don't see a different belief system, at least how do we get them to break up with the belief system that is causing them pain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think in, in, your, in your question actually resides somewhat of the answer, right? How do we get them to break up with the belief system that they've adopted in the first place? There's a reason why they're married to that belief system. They're getting something from it. It's providing them with something always, right? And so our belief systems in many ways, you know, we can look at family systems. We could look at the religions we grew up in. We can look at the cultures and the societies and the ethnicities. And I mean, there's just, there's so many things that can lead to our belief systems. But what we can what we can pinpoint is what are we getting from that belief? What is it providing us with? What safety? What security? What certainty? Um, and for some of us, for some of us, it's not a, a necessarily a quote unquote positive thing that we're getting from that certainty or from that belief. Sometimes our belief is providing us with the the shame and the self criticism 
that we experience that we think that we unconsciously hold to keep us stuck, right? So sometimes we have limiting beliefs and we, we don't want them, right? We want to get rid of them. <clears throat> but that limiting belief, right? Whether it's a, a belief that we think is good for us or a limiting belief that's holding us back, that limiting belief is still providing us with something. For some people, right? I'll just give you a personal example. So I grew up in a household where I was told constantly that I was not intelligent, that I was stupid, that I would never amount to anything. I mean, it was just embedded into the conversation around me a lot of times and in, in really unhealthy ways. And so I adopted this belief, this limiting belief that I wasn't intelligent, that I would never be good enough and other iterations of that. Now, that belief system, I spent a long time trying to disprove, working against it, working against it, working against it, working against it. But the challenge with that is that I was still trying to prove that person wrong. I was still trying to prove that individual wrong who had embedded that belief system into me. And so to relinquish it was actually to find a deeper sense of forgiveness for that person because that belief system that I had adopted had, was not mine, right? It was someone else's that I had taken on. And so what it was giving me was a connection to, and in a weird way, a relationship to that individual. Everything, everything, everything in our life almost always comes back to attachment. How are we connecting with other people? And so to find forgiveness, to let go of that belief was to change my relationship with that individual in some capacity. So how do we convince someone to change their belief systems? We do a few things. One, we can connect them with the raw emotion, the raw experience of that belief, right? So sometimes I'll take you know, a client through an experience or, or a man through an experience of connecting with the anger or the shame or the sadness or the grief that that experience is providing him with. Because so often we have a limiting belief. I'm stupid. I'm not good enough. I'll never amount to anything. But we actually never allow ourselves to feel the fullness of that experience. And so every time it comes up, we reject it. We reject it. We reject it. So sometimes we aren't able to let that experience go because we haven't allowed the, the fullness of that grief to wash over us, to take its course, to cleanse us in a way so we can say, I get it. I don't actually need that. I can let go of that. That doesn't serve me at all. It's absurd that I even hold that any longer. So sometimes we're holding on to that limited belief or that belief because we need to feel the, the emotion that comes along with it. The, the secondary component, the secondary way that we can shift out of that space is that we can begin to look at what are we getting out of holding on to that belief? Are we getting safety? Are we getting security? Are we getting to keep being a good boy, you know, or a good girl and prove that person right so that, you know, sometimes when we have people who have been abusive to us, unconsciously, we don't want to go against them, right? Because they've been abusive to us. And so we hold on to those narratives because we're scared to confront them, even in our minds. So in some ways to, to see, hey, this limiting belief what I'm getting out of this, what this limiting belief is providing me with, is that I never have to really confront that individual. I never really have to confront that abuse or that pain or that experience 
even if it's just in my head, <laughs> right? I never have to confront that part. So it's in a way it's keeping me safe. So that's the second part is that we can make contact with and begin to understand what am I getting out of holding on to this? And then I would say that the, the final piece of how we move out of this is simply that we, we can never convince anyone. I can never convince any of my clients. You know, I can never convince any of my clients. I think a lot of the struggling and the challenge that we see in the world is people engaging constantly, continually in the, the almost impossible act of trying to convince somebody to change their beliefs. <laughs> and telling them that their beliefs are wrong or telling them that, I mean, how many times have you heard like, uh, you just shouldn't think that way? You know, it's like, well, what the hell does that do? You know, it doesn't do shit for me. <laughs> it's like, I know, I don't want to think that way. You know, I, I don't want to criticize myself. I don't want to put myself down, you know, like, uh, of course I don't want that. Or trying to convince somebody else that they should take your perspective or they should just believe what you believe. So I think the the final way is letting go completely of the attachment or the desire to change someone else's belief. You know, if if they choose to, great. If they don't, that's okay too. You know, it's like if I've said something that allows somebody to find a deeper sense of freedom or or to liberate themselves from a, a belief that doesn't serve them, that's them. They've done that. That's not me. And so it's it's about reminding ourselves of individual choice and i think that that is a a really incredibly important component you know a, a mentor of mine dewey freeman who i think you know um he says health is our capacity and our ability to choose and i would agree with that and and so our work in many ways is to begin to look at where are and in what ways am i being infringed on in my ability to choose. I'm going to take you on a ride. Are you ready? Ready. <laughs> the monster I created to protect the kid in me is hard to manage. <laughs> Many of us, myself included, created a monster to protect the child within. For me, I created a monster that was incredibly proficient at getting attention to feel the wound of neglect and diverting attention when I had fucked up. My monster also loved to find all the ways, all the kinds of way to um, create pretend intimacy. This is the half hollow heart of the neglected or abandoned child. We struggle to know what real intimacy is or looks like. So we spend endless time, energy, and resources trying to get validation, affection, and attention while never feeling fully nourished or satiated by what we get. But our monster isn't bad. It is our protector. It is the thing we needed, sometimes to survive, sometimes to get acceptance, and sometimes so we wouldn't feel so alone. What does your monster look like? Beautiful writing of yours. Tell us more about said monster. What, what was it? How did you, how did you slay the dragon? Tell, tell us a little more. Yeah. I mean, I love this quote. I mean, the quote initially, the monster I created to protect the kid in me is hard to manage is a quote by Mark Maron. He's a hilarious comedian. I, I love his work. He's, 
he's just <laughs> i mean he's just a character um but you know i think most of us have created some form of our own monster to protect the child in us especially those of us who grew up around addiction uh, like i did or grew up around abuse like i did or grew up in a divorced family like i did um you know you could just go down the list, right? People that grew up around abandonment, that grew up around sexual abuse or, 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 or physical abuse or mental or verbal, et cetera. When that happens, we learn that our caretakers can't protect us. We learn as children that we are unsafe, that in some ways, <clears throat> the people who we love, the people who we believe should be there to protect us and provide security and provide safety and give direction, etc., can't do their job, uh, aren't able to support us or serve us in that way. And so what we do is develop a, a part of our psyche that becomes very well adept in any environment, under any circumstance, to hide and protect our vulnerability, right? Our weaknesses. And for me, that was the chameleon. Like I was just, I was so good at fitting in under any circumstances in any situation. I was so good at, you know, being the class clown in elementary school. I was so good at being able to talk my way out of any situation. I was so good at watching people and identifying you know, what, what they wanted and needed from me and then using that to provide safety and security so that I never really had to be vulnerable in relationships, right? Like I could just go, I could just go on. <laughs> so the monster I created was this unruly chameleon that could shapeshift into any environment, into any circumstance and are under, under any circumstances. The problem with that is that the kid in me and the man in me always got to be alone, right? He was left in isolation and it continued. And this is the case. This is how it normally works. It continued to provide me with the, how do I want to say this? I'm going to back up. It continued to re-wound me in many ways. My primary, my core wound was that of neglect. And so the monster that I created, while I thought it was protecting me, right? Bill Blotkins calls, calls this sort of version like the loyal soldier. Well, I thought it was protecting me. What it was actually doing was maintaining the conditions of the environment that hurt me in the first place. So for many of us... Okay, hold on. Okay, hold on. Mm -hmm. Hold on. Hold on. Maintaining the conditions of the environment that hurt you in the first place. So you were going through the abuse. And then the reaction was, let me adapt to whatever situation is. And the, the, the adaptation, the purpose of that was so I could prevent getting hurt. Yeah. So I can protect myself. But in the, but in the process, you re-engage the hurt because you isolated your true self. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that, am I, am I, do I, do I follow right? I, I, I isolated my true self and hid the pain of that experience. Yeah. So separation. So I created separation. And this is, you know, in, again, in the book, I talk about like the myth of male separation that we, we believe that there's strength in suppression, you know, that we are somehow stronger 
that we are somehow stronger and separating from our pain, separating from our grief, separating from our sadness. And so I adopted that as well. I created this chameleon-like character that, you know, was really charismatic, really outgoing and gregarious on the outside, um, but who felt alone and neglected on the inside and never really knew how to create proper attachments, never really knew how to, um, be in relationships. And so I would be in relationships and be unfaithful. You know, I'd sleep around, even though I was in a relationship with somebody that I really wanted to be monogamous with. And it was this ongoing cycle. So I continued to create that same environment of feeling neglected, except then I was the person, I was the perpetrator. I was the one creating the neglect. I was neglecting others and I was neglecting myself. So this is what people are talking about when they say hurt people, hurt people, right? It's that you get, you are given pain. And if you don't know how to deal with that pain, if you don't know how to heal it, if you don't know how to integrate it, if you don't know how to embody it, what ends up happening is that you end up passing it on and you can end up passing it on regardless of whether you are trying to take action, take action in a different direction, right? You're trying not to be that person. I was trying not to be an abusive person, right? I was trying not to be somebody that harmed other people. I didn't want to hurt girlfriends and and cheat on them and lie and, you know, be a complete mess. I didn't want to do that. Right. But I, but I did, it manifested as a byproduct of this monster that I had created in order to protect this wounded, scared, hurt, neglected and alone child that lived within me. And so the process, and maybe I'll just, I'll say this and I'll, I'll, I'll pause because I'm sure there's a question in there, but the process was about being able to, in some ways, father myself through that experience to allow myself to feel the, the pain that I had gone through to find forgiveness to, towards those who had hurt me and to begin to tend to that boy in me. You know, I think to summarize, it created this part of me that was trying to protect that child, you know, who couldn't really protect himself. And so in the process, I had to learn how to, in some ways, father myself to be able to go through the the anger and the frustration and, and feel the grief and allow myself to find forgiveness, you know, embark on that journey of finding forgiveness towards the people who had hurt me and then to find forgiveness towards myself, right? Again, for the, for the consequences of my actions, right? For the, to not blame someone else and say, you know, well, it was because I was mistreated as a kid or it's because my parents got divorced. No, to fully own as a sovereign individual separate from what I had experienced that I still did those things to someone else because that is what it means to find self-forgiveness, right? To, to fully hold ourselves accountable to the, to the weight and the impact of our actions. And, and so, I, you know, in, in that process is where I found some form of salvation and, and, and a really deep, deep sense of healing to be able to relinquish, um, the things that had taken place. I think it's very interesting the way you worded it, where you gave yourself forgiveness. Because often when we look at our behavior and we look at 
we look at behaviors that we do that we don't like, we instantly shame the behavior and we shame ourselves. And shame and forgiveness can't live together. It, this is one of those things where you you have to choose. What are you going to choose? You choose the shame or you choose forgiveness. They're, they can't work together. Mm. And so by choosing the forgiveness, you also chose the vibration of love, which offered you healing. If you were to choose the vibration of shame, you will, you will go deeper into anger, into resentment, into disconnection. That's tough work. That's hard. That's very hard to do. Yeah. And, you know, I think in like in, in my work with with men, with women, with couples, I talk a lot about shadow work and shame comes up a lot in that because when we are experiencing shame, shame produces objectification. So when when we feel shame about around certain parts of ourself, right? Like, let's say we have shame around how we've shown up in a relationship or we have shame around our body or we have, you know, shame around sexual performance or whatever it is. We then objectify that part. And when we objectify it, we make it other. We turn that experience, that feeling, that belief system into something that we label as not us, right? So we can, we can never really heal it. We can never really connect it because we've, we've separated from it, right? So if, if anybody's ever had the experience of like having anxiety, for example, one of the biggest challenges that people have around anxiety is that they have objectified their experience of anxiety because they don't want it, right? It's a very natural response, right? It's, the way, it's actually the way that our brain is wired. Whenever we have an experience that our body doesn't like, our brain's natural response is to move us away from that. It's to say, I don't want that. That's not me. Get that away from me, right? It's trying to protect us. And so when we have an emotional response like anger or anxiety or sadness or depression or grief that we don't want, the brain's natural response is to objectify that piece. We have, we have shame around it and then it pushes it away. So our, our work is in some ways to reconnect to the things that we have objectified within ourselves, within our relationships, about our past, about our career, about our finances, right? About our sexual performances, about, you know, all these different parts. It's about inviting them back in and moving them from a I-it relationship to an I-thou relationship that we stop objectifying that other thing or the other person and we be in relationship with it that we we reconnect with it in a way that we say that that actually is a part of me and that's okay right and and in in that way there's a uh at least an opening and a hope for some form of of connection and, and reconciliation walk me through a day in the life of me of you <laughs> you're a new dad husband one of the top top men's coaches in the world, successful entrepreneur, friend, son, walk me through a day in the life. Obviously we know every day is different, but I would say most days, you know, I, I wake up, I'm greeted by my boy. <laughs> he's usually, he's, he's up early. Sometimes it's like five 30, sometimes it's six or six 30. Um, and we'll bring him in bed he sleeps in a bassinet beside us. Uh, and so he'll be in bed with us and, you know, wake up and, 
it's it's amazing because he's just he's in that phase right now where he's so excited to see us. So even at like six o'clock in the morning, you know, you're like wiping sleep out of your eyes and you're exhausted and you know, you haven't gotten I haven't gotten much sleep. But he's just so happy, you know, he's just so excited to see me. So my day starts off with watching consciousness come online <laughs> uh, and and just see my my boy smile and so i'll take him downstairs uh most of the time so that my wife can get a little bit more sleep uh i'll put him in you know his like little chair or i'll play some games with him or read him a book um and and then i'll do some breath work i'll do some yoga uh i'll do some stretching uh I'll make, if 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 he is okay, I'll do a little bit of meditation uh, or some Tai Chi. And then uh, and then he and I will make coffee together. He, he takes part of my coffee routine, even though he's only, you know, three months old. And then I start off my day. And my day can include writing, writing my book, um, seeing clients, working with men to help them, you know, create a path forward in their life to reconnect to their sense of self-leadership, self-authorship, their sovereignty, working with couples. Um, yeah, writing the book, podcasting, interviewing incredible people that I respect and admire and want to learn from. And then at the end of the day, I'll usually wrap up by doing a little bit more breath work, maybe doing a little bit of meditation, um, and then make dinner, spend time with my wife, catch up with family catch up with friends. Uh, usually we'll put my son to bed at around eight, you know, it's like that, that parent life where you have to get them into routines. <laughs> so you're like strict with bedtimes. Yeah, uh, those routines are crucial. Oh, they're crucial. They're, they're clutch. And, uh, you know, maybe take part in the, in the 80 year old life and watch some jeopardy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, usually my wife and I will, will connect either over dinner or after he's gone to bed and just recap our days and talk about how parenting is going and, you know, what came up in our work um, or, you know, discuss some content that, that we've listened to. I'm a huge reader. So in, in there somewhere uh, is, you know, reading, reading a book or listening to a podcast. Um, I'm currently reading a book called The Case Against Reality by Donald Hoffman, which is a wildly fascinating book. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's my day. I, I don't think I've missed too much in there. I'll work out. I usually work out four or five times a week. Um, you know, do some weight training, stuff like that. Go kayaking. We live right on a lake, so I'll go kayaking. Yeah. Hiking in the forest. Can't leave out hikings. Sounds like a beautiful day. Yeah. It's not too shabby. So when it comes to business, uh, we do have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast. You run a successful business. What are some of the the principles, uh, the strategies, the behaviors, you know, the things that, and you can be as strategic in your answer as you'd like to be. Uh, you don't have to be vague if you don't want to. Um, what are some of the things that work? What are some of the things that you're like, hey, we need this in the business. We, you know, we need to do this. Tell me, tell me about your business. Yeah. I mean, I can maybe be direct in what's worked for me and what's not like <clears throat> I'm, I'm a pretty fluid individual. I definitely have structure. 
I, how do I want to say this? I use structure to give me freedom, right? So when I implement structure within my business, it's so that I have more time to basically do whatever the hell I want because I love being able to do whatever I want, whether it's going for a hike at three o'clock in the afternoon or having my mornings the way that I want them. I, that's how I've set my business up. Now it's taken me a long time to get there. Uh, you know, I, I worked a hundred hours a week when I was working at Apple and, and building my company. Um, but I use structure a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. I'd work, wow. I'd work like 50, 60 hours a week at Apple. And then I would work building my company on the side. So it was like six, seven mm-hmm. days a week. Most of the time it was pretty excessive, but that was a brief period, right? It was like 600 hours a week for six months. And then it was like, 70 80 hours a week and then back down to 50 and so it, it it scaled it didn't stay that way for a long period of time um a few things that i found to work really well is number one create your own opportunities i see a lot mm-hmm. of people waiting for other people to give them opportunities so for example I like speaking on stages. I like speaking in front of people. I love doing this. I love being on podcasts and interviews. And I like developing that skill set because I think it's a very important skill set. Right? Being able to communicate is, is one of the most undervalued skill sets that we have in our society, especially right now. We live in the age of attention and information. And if you know how to communicate, then you know how to get your message out there and you know how people are going to uh, engage with you and, and spread, et cetera. So I have used a lot of, um, I've created a lot of opportunities for myself to expand in that direction. So for example, I had put on events with man talks around North America. We had had events in like a dozen cities around North America. And I'd spoken on some small stages. I'd spoken at you know, corporate events and I wanted to level up. I wanted to level up the credibility of my business but I also wanted to level up my personal credibility in terms of um, being a speaker. And so I decided that I was going to put on an event uh, for, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred people, which I had never done before, and that I was going to hire Gary Vaynerchuk. And so for me, I had had this dream of like, I want to speak on a stage with a big speaker like Gary V, like Tony Robbins, knowing that I likely was not going to get hired because nobody really knew who I was. I was not going to get hired by, you know, a company or picked up by an agency. I created the event myself. So I fronted the money. I hired Gary V. I signed him. It was excessive, right? It was almost six figures for his contract for him to come out and speak. <clears throat> I mean, I guess that's what he's worth. Maybe not excessive. And, uh, and then, you know, put on this event. And I put on that event so that I could stretch myself and my capacities of being somebody who put on events and somebody who spoke on stage and the event was a huge success. We had 1500 people. Um, Gary V spoke on the stage, Daniel Laporte, a bunch of entrepreneurs. And I got to uh, speak right before Gary V, which ended up leading to me speaking right before Gary V again at a different event. Cause I, I got asked, somebody was in the audience at that event and they asked me to come and speak at their event in Toronto. And it led to a whole bunch of other opportunities speaking, um, you know, at, uh, what is it called? I'm like totally blanking on the name right now. 
uh, entrepreneur organization, uh, which is a you know big uh, a big entrepreneur account. Um, the United Nations. I got to speak at the United Nations because of that. So like it unfolded a whole bunch of opportunities. So <clears throat> I would say do not undervalue the the efforts that you can put in in creating your own opportunities within your business. The second thing I would I would say is know where your edge is and try and push that edge as as much as humanly possible, but also know your limits, right? So for me, that was a big stretch, but financially, it wasn't putting my business at risk, right? I wasn't going to go bankrupt if the event went bust. It it was pushing my limits as a speaker, but I'd spoken on stages. I had done TEDx, you know, I'd, I'd done a bunch of things. So it, it wasn't me recklessly surpassing my limits. I think that we, mm. we undervalue the inherent richness of knowing what our limits are as entrepreneurs, right? We, we, we buy into this sort of a fairy tale idea that you can just like there are no limits and then everything's limitless and just you know aim for the stars and you know, hit the moon and like all that kind of shit and I I don't like that I I think it's important for you to know where your limits are so those are some of the things that have really supported me in my business I think to be more strategic I'm not an operations person so I hunted for someone who's very gifted in operations and that's allowed my business to to run quite well. Um, I have, and this is a, this is a lesson that I learned at Apple is to hire people who are more gifted than you in areas that you, um, that you're maybe not talented in or to hire people that are more gifted than you, uh, that are experts in their own field and to take good care of them. And so, I mean, that seems like an obvious one, but sometimes people sacrifice hiring really exceptional people um, and they don't aim for expertise. You know, they don't aim for uh, what it is that they actually want. They, they sort of let those things slide. And then <clears throat> I think the last piece is finding and curating somewhat like innovative, yeah, curating innovative ways of engaging your clientele, the people who buy your products or your services, and having them tell you what it is that they're actually looking for, you know, to, to gain some real understanding of what it is that they want from you. That is incredibly powerful. You know, a lot of the the work that I've put out through man talks, whether it's the Alliance, I'll just use it as, as an example. That's like a group of men. We have hundreds of men from around the world. These guys meet every single week. I lead calls. We've got a book club. I bring in resources. You've been in there. That whole ecosystem has largely been designed by the men in it, not by me, not by what I think they need, but actually by them being able to say, you could improve on this. This needs to be better. You know, what if, what if we helped you design this? And so I think in, in some ways what we can do or, or what we need to allow ourselves more permission to do is to allow the people interacting with our products, our services, et cetera, to dictate what that product and that service should look like you know, so, so to humble ourselves a little bit. And so sometimes that means making it open source. 
Sometimes that means um, allowing people to give you some pretty harsh feedback. But the times that I've asked men in our community, you know, what could we do better? Who do you want to have on the show? Who do you want me to interview? What do you want me to talk about? What could be better within, you know, this, this membership? It has always exponentially supported the, the business. And then the last thing that I would say is know when to support those who want to engage with your product, but maybe can't. So for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was getting messages from so many guys from around the world, you know, telling me about how they had lost their job. They were struggling. They're stuck at home. You know, they're with their wife and kids every single day. And, and so there was just a lot of people that were really struggling and they couldn't afford being in a program, right? They had lost their jobs. And so, you know, in that moment I was like, okay, how do I support all these people? And so I, you know, I put a newsletter out, put it out on Instagram and just said, just join the Alliance. It's free. I'll make it free for three months. And if, and just come and get the support, like just come and, you know, be a part of it and you don't have to stay forever. If you can never afford it, don't worry about it. You never have to pay me. Just come and take part in, in this help. And that was arguably one of the best things that I did. Um, not just from an altruistic standpoint, but, but from a standpoint of my business, because those guys were incredibly grateful. They stuck around a lot of them and they ended up telling a lot of friends and, and brought men into our ecosystem. And then I think the last thing I would say is like, I know I said the last one was the last thing, but I'll leave this one as the last one. Uh, <laughs> let, let altruism be practical. Like, if like embrace altruism as something that's that's uh, approach it from a pragmatic approach you know i think that we've taken altruism and we've sort of put it out in this ethereal place but i don't think that that's necessary i think that altruism can be a very practical modality for building your business for engaging with your team for creating culture for building out your ecosystem and it actually it maybe is a requirement for the future of business because it's what a lot of people are looking for. They want altruism. They want purpose. They want to know that the company that they're working for, whether it's a mom-pa coffee shop or it's a Fortune 500 company, they want to know that that company is not just giving lip service, right, saying the right thing about you know, helping the environment or, or whatever it is, but that they're actually doing it, that they're actually a, a, a part of that cause. So approach, approach altruism from a very practical, pragmatic standpoint and see how you can apply it with your employees, with your customers, with, you know, people who are on your email list. What can you do for them? You should be asking that question all the time. What can I do for them? Not just to get something back, but what can I do for them to potentially make their lives a little easier, a little better, and to have them be a little bit more understood? And that concept will maybe go further in anyone's business, regardless of what it is, than almost anything else that I've said. <laughs>